Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. This is the second day we're talking about Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. And if you remember last time before spring break, which was a long time ago, truthfully, anybody really, nobody did anything really unusual, like go to Mongolia or something like that, or you know, actually, there's a there's a opinion column by Nicholas Kristof today, where he quite seriously says people really need to travel, not just to Europe, which is the same as really going to Connecticut. But you need to go to, you know, like far off places. And he's offered to take any college kid that really wants to go on one of his New York Times-sponsored travel jaunts through Africa to do, uh, to do re, you know, reporting to see what it's like. And he's suggesting that people should get college credit for taking a year out of four years, take one year, instead of going to courses, live abroad for one year. And not like in France, but like... Timbuktu, some place, you know, like three different places. One time in South America, one time in Asia, one time in, say, uh, in uh, Africa to get a full experience. It's very interesting because then you really do get this wide cultural experience that is, you know, exceptionally useful. It's exceptionally powerful. I, I got my first introduction to traveling when I went to. Europe as a backpacker, and then the second one was when I was in the Peace Corps, and I lived in Africa for two years, and then traveled all throughout the Middle East and Northern Africa on the way back, which was really exciting. I got arrested in Ethiopia, accused of being a CIA spy, with my friend who was also a Peace Corps volunteer, and the National Tourist Organization sent us to some place, I forget what it was, Gondar or some place, without the proper papers. And we get off and we said, we don't need papers. Are you serious? They demanded papers. I said, we're Americans. We're paying cash. What papers? They're green. Here, you want to see them? <laughs> and they said, come. And they arrested us and threw us in an interrogation room. And it was, we were being in, they were interrogated for a while. And then it was a Sunday morning, too, which was not the best time to get a hold of somebody in Addis Ababa. But fortunately, the manager of the hotel had not had a cash-paying customer for, like, years. And so he managed to call up his friend who worked at the National Tourist Organization in Addis Ababa, who happened to be sleeping in that Sunday morning, and said, did you send two Americans up here without the proper papers? And the guy said, oh, yeah, I forgot. Uh, what's about, where are they doing now? Oh, they're being interrogated by the police chief. <laughs> and he said, oh, we'll rescue them right away and make sure they pay cash. <laughs> and so the papers were sent up the next day. But, I mean, you learn things like that. It's not always good to get arrested in Ethiopia, but you learn things like that when you travel. So spring break just finished, but it's a good thing to go traveling. Anyway, it's a good article, too, opinion column today in today's New York Times with Nicola, by Nicholas Kristof to read about that. Okay, Andrew's Game, Orson Scott Card. If you remember what we were talking about last time, we were talking about the fact that there are a number of people out there that really change things. They make their mark in the world. I'm dealing that with some of my own relatives and friends. A lot of them, or some of them, have just jobs. Jobs. They're working for money to make a living. And you say, that's fine, that's what you're supposed to do. But in the reality... When you get done with life, do you really want to say, all I did was shell shoes, I made a living, I did what I needed to do to survive? Or do you want to make a mark in the world somehow? Do you want to change things in the world somehow? And that's what really Orson Scott Card is talking about. Enders. Enders change things. They made a mark. And everybody has to face this. I was talking to someone the other day who said, he's making a living. Is that what you really want to do, to make a living? And really, that's what we were talking about last time. Do you really want to survive? Do you really want to make a living? But all of our young adult, our young life is, and a young adult life is oriented towards surviving, making a living. But then you really get to the point of saying, is that what you really want to do? Is that what you really think you should do? Is that what is driving you to be satisfied, fulfilled as a human being? And that's always a really tough question. 
that people have to face, all everyone, everyone has to face eventually. Anyway, we were talking about that and how some people really make a difference in history. And that Orson Scott Card's basic message, I think, is that this aspect of making a difference should be more widespread. Because, And what were we talking about which was the critical ingredient to making a difference in history? Can anyone remember what we were talking about? It was like 10 days ago. It, was, it had to do with the way you think. What were we saying? Outside the box. That's right. Thinking outside the box. You have to think outside the box. You have to think differently. You have to come up with ideas that people normally don't think about. Now, Nicholas Kristof's opinion column today, in today's New York Times, and what is today? What is the date today? 21st. The 21st. Tuesday, the 21st of March, 2006. Well, that's a classic example of thinking out of the box, coming up with ideas that are just, no one's ever really posited that before. Literally canceling an entire year of college and having people live for four months at a time in a different location on the planet. And he was going through the economic reasons as well, that it would cost probably less than sending your kid to college, that you can ride these third world trains dirt cheap, sometimes sitting on the top of the trains. Uh, you can travel every place with you know, basically <coughs> nothing, live on almost nothing. And at the same time, you have to be... The only, the only argument I actually would have with Nicholas Kristof on this point is that when you do go abroad, I do not recommend that people go abroad just by themselves. And that's sort of what, they, what Nicholas Kristof was suggesting. Very likely, if you just wander abroad into third world countries, you will very quickly become a victim of rape, robbery, mugging. Very similar to a third world person who comes into New York for the first time and and as the first thing that happens is he's ripped off by the taxi driver for $4,000, his life savings, because <laughs> he didn't know the price of anything. And you have to be able to know your way around. But going with a group, Nicholas Kristof mentioned that the Mormons organize missionary groups to go out and live for a year abroad. Peace Corps is also very good. Uh, various religious groups of all types, of all denominations, and do that, various other educational groups. And Nicholas Kristof was suggesting that other people do it. Now imagine how different that would be for the college environment, thinking out of the box, for colleges to give up a year of tuition while the kids are, are having that experience. So that was a really sort of a radical idea, but it was a really interesting idea. Okay, let's go to page... Actually, this is still in the introduction. This is 25. XXI. XXV, I'm sorry. XXV, 25. This is still in the introduction. And let's just take a look at some of the other people that have found this book to be useful. Ender's Game is a story about gifted children. It is also a story about soldiers. Captain John F. <coughs> Schmidt, the author of Marine Corps' War Fighting, the most brilliant and concise book of military strategy ever written by an American and a proponent of the kind of thinking that was at the heart of the Allied victory in the Gulf War, found Ender's Game to be a useful enough story about the nature of leadership to use it in courses he taught at Marine University at Quantico, Watauga College, the Interdisciplinary Studies Program at Appalachia State University, as unmilitary a community as you could ever, as you could ever hope to find. Uses Ender's Game for completely different purposes to talk about problem solving and the creation of the individual. So that's two different. One is in a wartime college and the other is in Watauga College uh, in an interdisciplinary study. Okay, and a graduate student in Toronto explored the political ideas in Ender's Game. A writer and critic at Pepperdine has seen Ender's Game as, in some ways, religious fiction. So what you're getting here is what? What do we? What is it? I really like this next little mini paragraph. Okay, let's read it. All these uses are valid. All these readings of the book are correct. For all these readers have placed themselves inside this story, not as spectators, but as participants, and so have looked at the world of Ender's Game, not with my eyes only, but also with their own. Because we talked about last class how, or maybe it was class, I don't remember, it was about how, you know, did the author really write all this? 
you know, the author wrote the story, but did the author really mean all this stuff you're reading between the lines, all the, you know, stuff that you think is there might have been inferred by the author. And I kind of like that where Orson Scott Card is saying, you know, it doesn't matter what I meant to infer. It matters that you, like, you became part of the story and you understood it on a different level. Mm -hmm. And if you can find it in there, then it's there. It's whatever you see in the story. I think it's what you've been trying to tell us the whole entire class, that you need to interpret the book for yourself and how it relates to the world. And that's what these people have been doing, basically, and coming up with different interpretations. And I think that's very cool thing to do that. Yeah, coming up with different interpretations. Yeah, that's a very interesting. You know, the whole idea is that the authors themselves write a story. But how many people are influenced in various different ways by how the story affects them in unusual ways? that the author did sometimes or sometimes didn't intend. But you're absolutely correct. Orson Scott Card certainly does not mind these interpretations. He's, in fact, he seems to be you know, strongly encouraging them. All right, let's go over to page 35. Now, 35, this is in Chapter 4, The Launch. Let's read a few sections in here and see if we can come to grips with various ideas. So this is Ender talking with Graf, and he's talking about some of the philosophy of the war, and and, and well, let's just read it and we'll see. Okay, the page 35 near the end. Actually, you know what I think I might do? I might read... The paragraph at the bottom is what I want to read, but the paragraph above it gives a little bit of background. Look, Andrew, I'm sorry if you're lonely and afraid, but the buggers are out there. Ten billion, a hundred billion, a million billion of them, for all we know. With as many ships, for all we know. With weapons we can't understand, and a willingness to take those weapons to wipe us out. It isn't the world at stake, Ender. It's just us, just humankind. As far as the rest of the biosphere is concerned, we could be wiped out and it would adjust. It, could, it would get on with the next step in evolution. But humanity doesn't want to die. As a species, we have evolved to survive. And the way we do it is by straining and straining and, at last, every few generations, giving birth to genius. The one who invents the wheel, the light, the flight and flight. The one who builds a city, a nation, an empire. Do you understand any of this? Ender thought he did, but wasn't sure, so he said nothing. No, of course not. So I'll put it bluntly. Human beings are free when humanity needs them. Oh, I'm sorry, I take that back. Human beings are free, except when humanity needs them. Maybe humanity needs you to do something. Maybe humanity needs me to find out what you're good for. We might both do despicable things, Ender, but if humankind survives, then we are good tools. Is that all just tools? Individual humans, human beings, are all tools, and uh, Graf was saying, and the others use, uh, uh, that the others use to help us all survive. That's a lie, says Ender. Graf then goes on and says, no, it's just a half-truth. You can worry about the other half after we win this war. What do... What do you think is going on here? What's what are we thinking about this? Is it correct? How might you relate it to current politics? We've got a war going on now. It's not the same thing that it's talking about here. Say, it, say it again. Uh, uh, here, like, Graf is talking about, like, the survival and enhancement of the human race, that every so often, like, it's the per like, we create the person who comes along that can push us to the next level, who created the will, which changed our society, who created life, which changed our society, flight, which once again changed society. But the war involved in the present isn't really as, like, well, it's going to change the very way we think. This is just a uh, war of uh, 
this isn't the same. You mean the war that we are involved in, the, the war on terror? Yeah. Is, is, okay, go ahead. But like Rash talking about how, what's it, like all of these great people, like everybody, like normal people, like are free to do whatever they want. Then you get the like one person who shows up every generation or two, who is capable of something more, and he isn't free to do whatever he wants because humanity needs him to, to do something. Like yeah, like the way to the next uh, stage of our world. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so he's not free. But is the comments that Ender's not free then, according to this comments by Graf, that he's needed and uh, to survive? But right now, this is a war between the buggers and humanity. But isn't every war that we ever get into seem like it's the only war that really matters? Like, are we really worried about <coughs> World War Two or the Korean War? or the Vietnamese War, or World War One, or the future wars we're going to face? Isn't George Bush really just talking about our current war and like nothing else matters? Couldn't you sort of put George Bush in the... F in the... in the... Yeah. In, in the words of, of Graf? I mean, couldn't you put George Bush in the character of Graf and sort of have George Bush say the same thing you think so, I think? Exactly, but he's not thinking about the long term. I mean, that's what... that's a problem with politicians sometimes. They only care about getting reelected or their own term or anything like that. So they don't really care about oh, in twenty years what's going to happen or something. Like the that. current war, the current thing is being is being the most important. Actually, it goes to everything. It's always we're a very myopic species. Myopic is nearsightedness. We're a very myopic species in the sense that everything is just what's important now. And and according to Edward O. Wilson, the professor at Harvard, there's a genetic hardwiring reason why we think about the current as the only important thing. We, uh, those people who win the Darwinian race of evolutionary survival are those who think about the immediate needs first, that anything else be damned, including future generations. If you think about the deficits that this country is racking up right now, we are making you guys, actually, when you know, you're going to be actively working when these bills are coming in, we're making you into indentured servants. And this is clearly taxation without representation. You're going to be taxed to the ends of your financial limits to pay for our bills. And it's absolutely stupid to think that you're not going to have your own wars. You're not going to have your own problems. You're going to have all of your own problems, plus you're going to have to pay for all of the current generation problems. Just think about it. We're entering the era of echo wars, environmental wars. Because what's happening is, in a matter of 10 years, the oil supplies are going to start going down. They won't be exhausted, but they'll start declining. But our economies are still growing. Iraq, one of the first echo wars. We, 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 there's no ambiguity about it. There was no weapons of mass destruction. The world wasn't faded with any dire threat from Saddam Hussein. He was a bad guy. And I actually was always a proponent of intervention in, in, in regard to Iraq, just to make it uh, uh, you know, just to liberate it for the perspective of a, a free Islamic uh, nation that would be an, uh, a perfect representation of democracy in the Middle East that would then spread. But I was never a proponent of the way it was done, which was just the most ridiculous. Anyway, that's that's another whole era. But the the idea that it's if something's bungled, something's bungled, and you just have to recognize it. And now we have a horror situation of just everything's falling apart. But the only reasons we had to go into, in, into Iraq was because of the oil. There are many places on the planet that are really, really, really bad, that have done horrible things. Rwanda, the stories of Rwanda are legend. We didn't go in. We didn't stop the massacre. 800,000 people in a few months were just massacred to death. We just let it happen. We've let lots of bad things happen, and we don't intervene. But the Iraqis had oil, you see, and what was the beginning of the process of, of the echo wars. So the point I'm making now is whether or not you agree or disagree with whether we should have gone into Iraq, what you should see clearly is in 20 years' time, when you folks are 40, there are going to be plenty of echo wars. <laughs> There's going to be limited resources, People are going to be fighting over them. Oil is going to be really 
very difficult to get and there's going to be energy struggles and there's going to be other things and part of the wars are going to be because with the decaying economies you're going to have migrations of huge proportions crossing borders and people are going to be fighting to stop that to stop those border migrations and so you're going to have that type of stuff now what I'm saying now is it's going to cost you money to deal with that you're going to have to completely reorient the energy orientation, the, the energy structure of the of of, your, of this nation. Come up with renewable resources that we really should have started working on 30, 40 years ago. It's going to have to crash course. It's going to cost you money. They're going to have to be superconducting power lines going from the Middle West. I'm actually from the Southwest, where there's sun and lots of solar energy. They're going to have to be superconducting power lines a grid of superconducting power lines going to every major city to get the solar energy to all the major cities. Wind tunnel, windmills are going to have to be placed all over the place. They're going to have to come up with new ways to come up with geothermal. You're just, in your lifetime, you're not going to be burning oil all of your life. That's going to cost you money to do that. And right when you're having to pay for all of that, you're going to have to be paying for all of the current administration's debt. Thinking narrowness. Um, pardon me, go ahead. Before we just pass like, it up to the next generation. So, we're thinking that, okay, we'll just pass this on. So Speak a little louder, louder Arnold. They'll probably pass it on, like, the present government's just, like, <coughs> passing the debt on to the next generation. Then our generation will probably, like, do exactly the same thing and pass it on to our children. No, there's a limit to how much you can pass on, because eventually these banknotes are due and you have to actually pay them. Now, you can borrow more and more, but there's only a limit to how much you can buy, bef- you can borrow before the uh, you're paying more on interest than you're on anything else. I, I think what he's saying is that it's a cycle. I mean, you pay, you, I mean, you know, our, or our parents' parents, you know, fought World War One, and, you know, they needed money for that, and then, you know, the next generation had to pay that off, and they had to fight World War Two. Then the next generation had to deal with that, and they had to fight the Vietnam War. That's a very good point. No, you're making a great point. Those are major conflicts that you have to pay for that are clearly short-term. That's not what's going on now. We are, even if you take out the Iraq money, we're borrowing through the nose just to pay the normal bills. And we're racking up more bills as you go on. The Medicare, Medicare, all the all of the new prescription drug medicine stuff, all that's being borrowed. We're not paying for anything. So, but I agree with you totally. No, Jason, well, me. then I'm I'm kind of confused. We're not paying for anything. We're borrowing. To pay we're, we're borrowing it. But where is all the tax money going? We consume. We we actually. I believe it's about eighty percent of the amount of money that we spend we're actually getting from taxes. The rest of it we borrow. That means we're not we're not bringing in from tax revenues anywhere close to what we need to pay the bills that we're currently paying. Most of the money that we get are from treasury bonds to pay the extra. And those bills and are being bought by mostly Chinese. So the Chinese government and others, Japanese and others are buying those bonds because those bonds relative to other places that you can buy bonds in the world seem to be a fairly good risk at the current time. And they're going to hold on to those and then ask for that money back eventually. So what basically happens is China is possessing a huge pile of American dollars with all of the goods that we buy from them. We pay them in American dollars. And the real question is how long are the Chinese actually going to sit on that pile of American dollars. Dollars are only worth as much as you can buy with them. And you really and they're not they're only buying one dollar of American goods for every six dollars of America uh, uh, six dollars that they sell to us. So really they don't have any need for buying things with dollars. Dollars are not very useful for them. They're just piling them up. And so at some point they're going to ask the big question, do we really want to keep holding dollars? Should we maybe be buying Euros and or yen or other oh. things? In which case they may just dump some of the dollars, and that's the or stop. Well, buying. I mean, yeah, but at the same time, what happens if we innovate? What happens if we come up with something new? What happens if there's something that the global market needs? Then all of a sudden, that trade imbalance changes. I mean, but yes, at the yes. current the there is a trade imbalance. But like, to do that, you have. Go ahead, Adam. What? At the moment, the majority of innovation, like 
is in no, information technology. And like a lot of the hardware stuff we're actually coming up with isn't in America, it's in like Japan. So if an innovation comes, then chances are like the America still is really high up on the research, but there's lots of other places that are very rapidly catching up with us. Well I mean well I mean you know what you said Andal's making a very good point. Meaning Innovation is one thing, but you have to pay for innovation. Well, you have to pay for the infrastructure. Now, just wait. Let, let's 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 put some meat on on the bones that Otto just just raised. You say we can innovate and come up with new stuff, but to do that, we have to put lots of money, money that we're now bankrupt of. We don't have it into R and D to be able to do that. What are the countries that are putting that money into R and D? India and China. Well, okay. Who's going to then be the innovators in the future? I can't speak for India, but China is communist. I mean, in America... Well, in America, we apply for grants. I mean, America has a completely different infrastructure for research. And you're talking about a government which, at the drop of a hat, can just allot funds to any research that it sees fit. And so you're talking about a different infrastructure. Like yeah, but actually, you cannot say that... Con- that like the, at the end of World War II, the German engineers were the best in the world. They were that close to launching a actual rocket. They were very close right. to the nuke. Like so, your government type—it doesn't mean anything. Communist or democratic. But it's it's wrong it's to call Chinese the Chinese yeah, government communist. communist. It's it's not. It's a non-democratic authoritarian regime. It used to be communist, but now it's a roasting capitalist country, and it is transforming itself on the local level more and more with each day to be more capitalist. So it is, you know, it's it's got governmental problems, and a lot of people have pointed out that it may be headed towards a big time revolution, which might be messy, or possibly a calmer shift. I suspect it's going to be a calmer shift to a democratic form of government because what's going to happen is that the people in power are going to have dominant interests in the business infrastructure and they are going to want a more modern government so that they can continue doing the business. So that the people in power themselves are going to let that transition occur. But what you're facing right now, and I think the only point we really want to make now so we can get on back to the, the, the structure of Ender's Game is that it's going to cost money to do all of these things and that you folks are going to pay for that when you get older. And right now, you could, it's clear that you're going to have to pay for the bills that are being racked up now as well as that future bills. Well, going back to the book or whatever, Graf says that these like things that like what we're doing now, paying for it, the despicable things that we have to do is justified because eventually if humanity survives all of this, then everything that was bad before is going to be like wiped off. And now what happens in 20 years when you look back? What will you say about George Bush's incredible focus on getting through the now at whatever borrowing cost? Now, put yourself 20 years into the future. You're going to be looking back. All those bills you're going to have to be paying and all the problems, the echo wars you're going to have to be facing. Jason, you're absolutely correct the problems you're going to have to face with innovation, all of that stuff you're going to have to pay for, you're going to see a huge roasting superpower of China over there. You're going to have to compete against it. India, you're going to have to compete against it. So what are you going to think of George Bush and the current administration's orientation towards whatever it takes to get through the now in 20 years? What we put yourself in 20 years and look back. What are you going to think? Well, in 20 years, I mean, based on, I mean, depends, I mean, a lot of it depends on who the successive presidents are and who, what, the, where the orientation goes. I mean, based on George Bush's orientation, if it were maintained through 20 years of, you know, whatever it takes to get it done, we won't be a superpower anymore. China will be a superpower, and we won't. I mean, right now, China has the biggest land army on the planet. And so, I mean, in the U.S., it's just, you know, mailing off its troops wherever George Bush seems to think they can, you know, be put in a conflict to greatest benefit, including Iraq. So, you know, based on that, the Chinese are just going to gain power. And with their innovations, well, I mean, with their innovations in technology being so much better than ours, if we maintain the same track, we're not going to be a superpower anymore in 20 years. And we're going to owe a lot of people a lot of money. What are you then going to think 
in 20 years when you look back? Will you be upset or will you be happy? Boy, am I sure glad George Bush put us in all that debt back in those days. Well, I mean, you'll be kind of upset. I mean, you'll be really upset, but the thing is that, it, I mean, we're still going the wrong way. Like, if we stop now, we could not not break even, but we could start working our way like to where we need to be. But okay. right now, I mean, didn't didn't they just try to to level out the tax structure, or uh, they were they were supposed to have a debate on the Senate floor about? Yeah, these are debates that'll always go back and forth. What the nature of the tax structure should be? Yeah, but, but I mean, but I mean, what I mean, if we really are that much in debt, I mean, if we're piling up debt for the future, and we do that, I mean, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah, that's, the, that's he wants to go to war in Iran now. I mean, Bush is going to spend money. He does not care. Right? Okay, actually, that's getting to the next point I was going to say. By, by the way, do realize I'm being the devil's advocate. If there was a Democratic president, I would be doing the same thing to the Democratic president. Uh, it's just that we happen to have George Bush in there, so I'm pushing it on the level of George Bush to, to, to sort of force the issues. There's going to be mistakes made always. But the real point I want to make from uh, Ender's game is... Is the is the myopic nature of human of of of, of, of human thought the short sighted nature of human thought and Edward O. Wilson says it's genetically programmed into us to think that way because of the nature of Darwinian survival. Those people who do think in the short sighted way are those who survive the best because they are the ones who cheat their neighbors, friends, relatives, whatever, in order to get what they need to survive. Now. When you get to a situation where you really have to think about the future, what are the genes that you really need? Do you need the genes that are myopic? Or, to get through the problems, to make the whole planet survive, the species survive, or do you need the prophets' genes? What are different between prophets and selfish people? Prophets automatically, without even trying. They think about everybody else and the future. What are selfish people thinking about? The now and themselves. So, if you are going to have a, a, a species evolve, what kind of species, what, what kind of members of that species will dominate? Well, it reminds me of the Darwin Award, actually. You, you know that award that they give people who, you know, get themselves out of the gene pool for doing something really stupid? <laughs> no, well, I don't know that one. Well, there's, there's it's a Darwin Award, and it, every year, you know, like three people die because they pull Coke machines over on themselves trying to shake out, like, an extra Coke. Okay. And, like, all, and there's, there's, like, an award for people who do this. And it's the Darwin Award, and it's always awarded posthumously to people who remove themselves from the gene pool in order to further <laughs> the evolution of okay. humanity. Okay, okay. I get the idea. Well, the, the, the thing that we want to remember, though, here is that the dominant numbers of people on the planet are going to be the, are going to be the selfish people. But in, when, when really tough times occur, we always turn to the great ones, to the enders, to the prophets, to the ones that have different types of genes. Are those the genes that survive? Meaning, the prophet's genes don't survive. Those are the anomalies. Those are the ones that randomly pop up from time to time. And what Graf is talking about is every once in a while we need genes that are not typical. We need genes of, so people will act differently. That one person will act differently and lead us in a new direction that we did not think of before. But now let's get back to another issue. Everything can stop when you have a real need for humanity, survival. Freedom is no longer there. What about the Patriot Act? The whole issue of eavesdropping on people. It's different because Graf's talking about the freedom of an individual. Like, endless freedom isn't there because humanity needs to defeat the buggers. Okay. The Patriot Act is like a populace of a country's freedom isn't there because like a few people in power are scared of the possibility of terrorists hiding within the country. Yeah, that's right. With the Patriot Act and the eavesdropping and everything else, uh, seizing of library records, everything, it, your own popular, you're exactly right, Otto, The your own individual freedoms are starting to be restricted because of the needs of survivability, the short-term needs of the now. 
Isn't this interesting how we are willing to sacrifice things? Well, and you can see it all through history. I mean, World War II, there were, you know, there were restrictions on what you could and couldn't do in order to, de- to defend the country's interests. That's right. In fact, some groups were particularly constrained in World War II. Can right. you remember? You had the Japanese were placed in internment camps. Exactly, um, the Japanese in internment camps. The, and then it started, and then it was, but then it was different when we got to Vietnam because people rebelled against the restrictions. You know, there were all the, you know, the draft card burnings and all that goofy stuff. But, I mean, these people didn't, there, there were rebellions. And the thing is that I think, you know, the government, governments learned from that. And so now, the Patriot Act, it was like, we had 9-11, oh wow, we need this. And the people are all gung-ho for it, and so it gets pushed through. And then, you know, there were no riots, there were no fights, no one, you know, assaulted anyone in the streets over the Patriot Act, but now people are kind of like, wait a minute, you know, what have we done? Let me be a little bit more of a speculative devil's advocate in this case and push you a little bit further in that exact same direction. What happens when the next big terrorist attack happens? Now, mind you, uh, General Lebed, late, the late General Lebed of the former Soviet Union, once said that there are 125 suitcase-sized tactical nuclear weapons that, uh, (coughs) excuse me, folks, are missing. We don't know where they are from the former Soviet arsenal. Uh, They just don't, they're just not around anymore, guys. And we don't know where they are. Now, they're out there someplace. And there is a huge desire for buying those things. Do you know how many Stinger missiles were let go by the United States in Afghanistan back in the old days? Meaning, just given to people like uh, a lot, yeah, a lot of people just to fight the Soviets back in those days. So we have a situation where there are tons of Stinger missiles and nuclear weapons out there that could go in odd places. What would happen if a nuke goes off anywhere in, which is? which a lot of intelligence people think is inevitable eventually that a nuke, terrorist nuclear weapon will eventually happen and they're just trying to postpone it as much as possible but it's eventual that something's going to happen what happens if it goes off either in the United States or in Europe well, what, will, what, what will the Patriot Act seem then well I mean, immediate, I mean I can just imagine the immediate governmental like we're going to pass this bill and that bill and the other bill in a you know late night candle burning session of congress and i mean i i can see where if that happened the next morning the american people would wake up with severely restricted freedoms with severely restricted freedoms exactly right because the, you know you can't that terrorist nuclear weapon got through without anybody watching and how are we supposed to know that somebody going with a bag to Kroger's isn't really catching, holding a, a, nuke, a nuke someplace? Suddenly everything has to stop. What would be the reasons that that would occur on an economic basis? Now remember, I'm not talking about you folks. I'm talking about people with real money. I'm, I'm talking real money. I'm talking like real money. Those people have access to the president. I mean, at a drop of a hat they have access to the president. And those people are big money people. Those are like way bigger than you've ever imagined, big money people. Do you really think they're going to worry about your future if their money is at stake? (laughs) And they will have access to the president immediately. So you're talking about the Patriot Act looking like milk toast compared to what will happen if and when a terrorist nuclear weapon occurs, and the likelihood of that eventually happening in your lifetime is really quite high. Now, Hussein, you raised the issue of an invasion of, uh, of Iran. If Iran continues to go nuclear, and they get one, with all that money, all that oil, hostility towards Israel... And as Bush's approval ratings are dropping. And approval ratings are dropping, and maybe the 2000 elections are coming closer, and... Well, it might not even be an issue. I mean, at some point, Israel is going to get PO'd. I mean, I mean, I realize that we're looking at this from a U.S. perspective, but, I mean, if George Bush were smart, he'd just sit back, because he can't afford to go invade somewhere else. I mean... At some point in time... 
he may say he can't afford not to. He's going to try to convince Americans just like he did with Iraq that we have no choice. We have no war. choice and that they really have weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> and he's like, I'm 100% sure. Iraq was like isolated in itself. Like it, the rest of the uh, Middle Eastern world saw like Iraq as a blemish on it. So they didn't. So when George Bush decided that he was going to invade, they didn't have so much of a problem. Iran, on the other hand, like the whole like Shah revolt thing was bad, but it's still a quite like an, an integrated member of the Middle Eastern community, and it's like. I'm not sure whether Iran's an OPEC or not. I know it's like one of the major powers there. So if... One of the major oil producers, yeah. yeah. So if... And oil is power. Yeah. So if, like, America decides that Iran's their next target, I don't think the rest of the Middle East is going to take that one thing down because Iran is a much stable. It's not got all the, like, blemishes that Iraq had. And... Like eventually they're just going to think if we just let him keep doing this then he's going to just take us all over one by one but what would happen? well I'll, I have one question ahead. really quick um, Iran is predominantly Muslim right? Yeah. Shiite um, Shiite Muslim yeah what religion uh, are India and Pakistan? In? Pakistan is mainly Shiite well, as well and India is Hindu India is Hindu. Okay, so Iran yeah, is the first but, Muslim but country. But India also has a large uh, has Islamic population. Yeah. Oh. You see, when you have a billion people, you can have a lot. You can th- have and a their, their, their Muslim population is larger than the population of the United States. Okay. So, um, but, you know, it's still a Hindu nation. But 700 million Hindus and 30 million Muslims. So, um, so Iran is not the first Muslim country to have nuclear weapons. No, Pakistan was the first. Pakistan was the first Muslim country to have nuclear weapons. Nobody has, like, the only big thing was that Pakistan and the only, like, hoo-ha that was created was Pakistan and India both had nukes and they hate, they're not very friendly with one another and they're, like, next to another. Yeah, but... They're not going to do it. They wouldn't wouldn't shoot each other because they'd end up with their, with, like, their own nuclear fallout. They worry about it then, they're worrying about it now. The the other point, though, is is to note that when Indian, when, st- when India started to detonate some of its nukes as a means of intimidating Pakistan, Pakistan didn't even blink at detonating a whole bunch of its nukes. I mean, it had enough nukes to detonate what seven, just to show pa- just to show India that it also has them. I mean, you're talking about having enough to have a reserve supply. <laughs> And some of them are big and some of them are small. So they detonated some really rinky-dink ones and some big ones. And so you're in a situation where if Iran has it, plus all of that oil, plus all of that money, the Bush regime may feel that if Iraq goes south and it, you know, they lose the war, it goes into a situation of civil war, the Republicans may not get elected for the next 20 years. And they may need to change that dynamic, and they may see Iran as a way to solve that, as well as solve a national security issue that will plague, that will face, that will confront them in the future. And it might start in all different ways. It might start with the Israelis attacking the nuclear facilities of Iran. Why would they do that? Though? Pardon me? Why would they do that? Because well, Iran has made, or hasn't the Shah or the leader of Iran made no bones yeah. about the fact that the Israelis are absolutely, you know, they don't. They won't even blink if they see th- some threat to themselves. It's that's life-threatening. But, 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 but they, I thought I thought the Shah of Iran, or not the Shah. I'm sorry, the, whoever the leaders of Iran had come out in favor of nuking Israel. I thought he put it out in the media that if he got nuclear weapons, he was going to nuke Israel. He said some very threatening things right. uh, that that could be interpreted along those lines, but it's not clear. But I mean, even if Israel attacks or anything, I mean. America is the one backing Israel. We're losing money regardless of who goes to war in Iran. Yeah. Now, if there is no political cost to going to war, and the only political gain, meaning if they don't go to war, all George Bush would say is, whoa, well, we lost Israel, and uh, we lost Iraq, and... We would uh, never lose Israel. I mean... Well, the point is, that's that's the point. That is the point. So what is what is the likelihood, then, of George Bush doing something? 
Well, what what George Bush would do in order to maintain at least his political standing now is that when Israel got into it with Iran, if Israel started falling behind, all of a sudden they start getting shipments. But I don't think George Bush is dumb enough to send U.S. troops en masse. You have to try to imagine a, a world that's different from our current world. See, you're looking at a system... We haven't had a terrorist attack since 9-1-1. We haven't had any serious problems. We're borrowing money right and left, so we haven't had to pay the bills yet. We're really not having any strong problems right now. You have to look at the situation completely different after a major nuclear terrorist attack where the whole scenery is changed, the whole political... Look how different things were after 9-1-1. And to get it back to the novel, what we have to ask is then, what will he? What will George Bush or whoever's in power at the time think about you know, cutting corners with the Constitution when faced with what they see as life or death issues? And, and that's what really Orson Gacard is, is talking about. Ender's freedom to live as a normal kid was never a possibility. Are our freedoms to live as normal people going to be a possibility when somebody feels threatened out there? It's an interesting thing. Can I can I keep this going? Because we're going to uh, keep going with Ender's game until the time is up. And we've got 25 minutes, so let's go to page 47. Now this is rather interesting because here Ender is at the uh, is uh, looking at some kids playing a computer game, a video game, fighting the buggers. Okay. Actually, let's start on page forty-six, and this is chapter. What chapter is this? Chapter five. Ender liked it better, though, when two boys played against each other. So he's watching two boys play against each other and then against the computer. Then they had to use each other's tunnels, and it quickly became clear which of them was worth anything at the strategy of it. Within an hour or so, it began to pall. Ender understood the regularities by then, understood the rules the computer was following, so that he knew he could always, once he mastered the controls, outmaneuver the enemy, spiral when the enemy was like this, loops when the enemy was like that, lie in wait at one trap, lay seven traps, and then lure them like this. There was no challenge to it then, just a matter of playing until the computer got so fast that no human reflexes could overcome it. That wasn't fun. It was the other boys he wanted to play. The boys who had been so trained by the computer that even when they played against each other, they each tried to emulate the computer. Think like a machine instead of a boy. I could beat them this way. I could beat them that way. I'd like a turn against you, he said to the boy who had just won. Okay, now let's go over to page 47, the next page, and um, jump into when Ender started fighting the boy on the machine. So Ender took his place at the unfamiliar controls because he had not fought this particular with this particular game. His hands were small, but the controls were simple enough. It took only a little experimentation to find out which buttons used certain weapons. Movement control was a standard wire ball. His reflexes were slow at first. The other boy, whose name he still didn't know, got ahead quickly. But Ender learned a lot and was doing much better by the time the game ended. Satisfied, launchy? Then Ender said, Two out of three. We don't allow two out of three games. So Ender said, So you beat me the first time I ever touched the game, Ender said. If you can't do it twice, you can't do it at all. Then they played again. And this time, Ender was deft enough to put off, pull off a few maneuvers and the boy had obviously never seen before. His patterns couldn't cope with them. Ender didn't win easily, but he won. The bigger boys stopped laughing and joking then. The third game went in total silence. Ender won it quickly and efficiently. What's going on here that we gain from, that we can understand? He's thinking outside the box. He's clearly thinking outside of the box. What else can we get from it? What is Orson Scott Card telling us about human nature? They're all kind of trained the same way. Like all the boys are the same way of thinking. They don't think anywhere else. Yeah, that Orson Scott Card is saying it is normal for people to think the same way constantly. 
And what does that make you when you think the same way constantly? Makes you a robot. Pardon me? Makes you a robot. Makes you a Everybody's robot? Doing the same thing. And what does it make you with regard to threats from the outside? You don't know how to handle them. You don't know how to handle them. You're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. What's that? Yeah, you're vulnerable. Vulnerable. So, people normally are very vulnerable. They do the same way, they do the same things, they think the same way. And if anybody can think differently from them, they can very quickly outmaneuver them, box them in. Pattern thought. Let's go jump over to page 111. And I want to go through a whole bunch of stuff before it's, uh, let me see, we've got uh, 15 minutes left, but this is great. This is in chapter, what chapter is page 111 in? Chapter 8, The Rat. Okay, page 111. Actually, we're going to start on page 110. Let's see what we can get out of this. Um, Dink is talking with Ender. And they're talking about... Well... Dink is trying to challenge Ender. Why do you think you have to change, you know, save the world? Okay. Then Dink says, They think they got you on ice. Don't let them. That's what I came... That, But that's what I came for, Ender said. For them to make me into a tool to save the world. Then Dink said, I can't believe you that you still believe it. Believe what? The bugger menace save the world. Listen, Ender, if the buggers were coming back to get us, they'd be here. They aren't invading again. We beat them and they are gone. But the videos, all from the first and second invasions. Your grandparents weren't born yet when Mazer Rackham wiped them out. You watch, it's all fake. There is no war and they're just screwing around with us. But why, said Ender? Because as long as people are afraid of the buggers, the IF can stay in power. And as long as the IF is in power, certain countries can keep their hegemony. But keep watching the vids, Ender. People will catch on to this game pretty soon. And there'll be a civil war to end all wars. That's the menace, Ender, not the buggers. And in that war, when it comes, you and I won't be friends because you're American, just like your dear teachers, and I am not. They went to the mess hall and ate, talking about other things. But Ender could not stop thinking about what Dink had said. The battle school was so enclosed, the game so important in the minds of the children, that Ender had forgotten there was a world outside. Spanish honor, civil war, politics, the battle school was really a very small place, wasn't it? But Ender did not reach Dink's conclusions. The buggers were real, the threat was real. The IF controlled a lot of things, but it didn't control the videos and the nets. Not where Ender had grown up. In Ding's home in the Netherlands, with three generations under Russian hegemony, perhaps it was all controlled, but Ender knew that lies could not last long in America. So he believed. Believed, but the seed of doubt was there, and it stayed. And every now and then, sent out a little root. It changed everything to have the seed growing. It made Ender listen more carefully to what people meant, instead of what they said. It made him wise. What's going on here that we can get something from? Um, even Ender can like improve because he had this belief that the buggers were out there. He had no other reason to think out other else was, and now he learns. That, you know what? Maybe you mean there are no buggers. There could be a civil war, and this is just an IF's way of staying in power. But. He still believes, but he keeps that doubt, which you need, because that's all people, that's all you make, sh- make sure you're not vulnerable. You have doubt. You, hmm. you listen to everyone. That's a good point. So what I think that was, a, that was a big render. If he hadn't <coughs> heard what Dink had said, he might have been, like, blindly following this bugger. The buggers are going to attack us. And so, I mean, he, this little doubt probably helped him in all capacities throughout. That's really great. I mean, take a look at this. What was Ender like? I say, and I really like that. What was Ender like when uh, he was beginning this conversation with with Dink? But it's what I came for, for them to make me into a tool to save the world. 
when he thinks he has his purpose set out for him. He kind of has yeah. one-sided thought. One-sided exactly. thought. Yeah, lack of doubt, lack of self-reflection, lack of questioning. He himself had become patterned in some way. And Dink, even though <coughs> Dink was wrong about there not being a real threat, it was that need to constantly question that made Ender wise. That need to constantly question. Think about that. Let's go back to one of our betters, Socrates. Why was Socrates put to death? Because he made too many of the powerful manifestants. He did what? He made too many of the powerful manifestants feel stupid because he was always asking them questions. He wanted to <coughs> <coughs> because wait, uh, what is the last thing you said? He made he, he kept asking the questions they couldn't answer. He asked them, and where did he ask them all these questions? Just as you saw them with the man. Where? In the streets, in the baths. In the marketplace. In the marketplace. Uh, go ahead. You were saying something, Gavell. But he he wouldn't conform. He had his own way of thinking, and it went against what others in power thought, and they didn't like it. And when they, when he expressed that. That he, well, and how did he express this by questions, right? Remember the Socratic method. What did what did Socrates do? Basically, he just asked a lot of people questions, forced them to think, forced them to break out. He did the exact same thing that Dink did. Ask questions of their very most basic assumptions, the things that made their thoughts rigid, and what's their reaction? The reaction was violent opposition. He had to drink the hemlock tea. He had to commit suicide. Or be banished from Athens civilization as he knew it. Now, you see how Arson Scott Card ends this phrase. What did the having that doubt do? Did it change his way of seeing reality? No, but it made him... He realized there was still a, a threat out there, but it made him wise. From Orson Scott Card is saying... Can you have wisdom without doubt? Can you? Wh what do you think about that phrase? That question. Can you have wisdom from Orson Scott's card's perspective without doubt? Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. You, know. you can't have wisdom without doubt because otherwise you follow what people tell you blindly. And part of wisdom is being able to question, is being able to say, you know, I'm not going to take what the person says at face value, I'm going to think about it, I'm going to interpret it, I'm going to make it my own. And so Orson Scott Carter is saying, people who are wise doubt what they're being told. Not to the point where they don't believe anything, or not to the point where they're cynical or pessimistic, but just to the point where, you know, inside of you, when someone tells you something, and they expect you to take it as the gospel truth, that, you know, you think about it and think, well, you know, maybe they have an agenda, or, you know, maybe they're, maybe there's some slant on it that, that's to their benefit. That's a good point. Basically, the idea of doubting everything. Always. But, you know, this rules really fundamentally back to something we talked about very early in the course. Do you remember what I talked about with regard to Ludwig Wittgenstein and language games? How any level of communal and also Husserl made this similar point that any level of communication could not be understood just on the level of communication, meaning you can't even express an idea and assume that you really know what that idea is. You can't even hear an idea from someone and assume that you really understand what they mean. Even a thought you cannot understand. Because as Husserl would say, this is very far away from original perception. You can originally perceive something, but then it gets interpreted instantly, instantly interpreted and rechanged. And so you never really know anything. You never really can communicate anything. And so if even language and thought have to be questioned at its very core to get back to what the original perception was all about, then what, Andrew Scott Car what Orson Scott Card is saying is that wisdom comes when the doubting is is omnipresent everywhere at all times on all levels even when you're the most confident even especially among the leaders of society let's 
By the way, and do you notice how little reflection, self-reflection we get among our leaders of society? We value our leaders because they say, they are going to do something. They are going to do this or that. We must stay the course. We must do this, that. How many leaders do we value and would re-elect if they said, well, we don't really know what to do. There's some ambiguity here. If we go this way, that could happen. If we go that way, the other way could happen. We don't know. I mean, but the reality is that's the truth. We don't really know a whole lot, but we value leaders that blindly say, we're going to do X, Y, or Z. Go ahead. We value them because they make us feel like more secure. Because we feel like they make us more secure. Say more about that. They make us more secure how? Because we feel like at least somebody like in power has an idea of what's going on, what they're doing. Okay, now they have some, they, we have somebody in power who knows what they're doing. And what does that allow us to do? And what does it mean when we don't worry about it? We're just being robots again. We're just letting somebody else tell us what to do, what to think. Yeah, that's a point. We stop thinking ourselves. It never works out, though. I mean, it never works out because um, all a politician wants to do is get in power. They'll they'll sell you anything to. That's not I mean, but how many times has it been the case where someone will say, "Oh, we're going to do this," but they don't, then don't ever do it. Once they're in power, what are you going to do to stop them? No, no, but on the other hand, I pull, like you get the like average politicians who just want to get into power. Mm-hmm. But every so often, like you'll get the politician who wants something more than power. Like mm-hmm. normally, like often it took us at a crisis. Like Winston Churchill wasn't just a politician who wanted to get into power. He like actually he actually did something with the power. And he was there. He was more than that. No, I agree, but how often do you get yeah, a politician? It's a common thing, but I'm saying, like, maybe in a crisis, you get, a, like, people stop looking for a leader who just blindly shows, like, that, okay, we're going to do this, instead of somebody who they believe has a better chance of getting them out of this crisis. But true, that's what we should do, but we always fall in the same pattern of just electing someone who will blindly say, we'll go this way. Well, obviously, not always, but a lot of time, yeah, I'll I mean, most time. I mean, we need to get out of that break out of that shell of that habit maybe we can get a true leader who can maybe do something you know the whole concept of leader person who leads and everyone else then follows from this perspective there's some real problems with the whole issue of a leader I remember there was a Star Trek episode once of the original Star Treks where a very advanced civilization had a governing council they were a transcendent race that were basically light beings that could show up in human form just so humans could have someone to talk with. But they had rotating heads of the state. They just rotated. Sometimes this person would be head, then the next person would be head, and the next person would be head. And they would all have to come to consensus and things like that. And so the issue of leadership wasn't, you must follow me, but one of constant debating. The issue is really, can you can you abdicate the responsibility of thinking by re- by voting for a leader well, and, and succeed? Well, the thing is um, that, I mean, societies that don't have leaders tend to stagnate. I mean, just, for instance, there's, a, there's another Star Trek episode from the original Star Trek, I think, where some <laughs> starship left a book about the gangs in New York Yes. on a planet and they come back and the entire planet is run like the gangs of New York and they're a bunch of mob bosses but the reason that America moved out of that phase was because we had leaders who were moving the country forward and I think that in every instance if a if a if a if a part of the world if there's, if there's not a leader you tend to stagnate because people are going to combat each other for the right to lead I mean it'll, it'll just be it'll be just like mobs fighting each other with each with each person even in that Star Trek episode people very quickly got into rigid thought and the the so-called solution at the time was just to churn up the place a little bit by changing the by changing the ingredients that would lead someone to rigid thought really the the problem was that was a good point that you raised the problem was that people so easily fell into rigid thought people are so willing to abdicate the responsibility of leader of uh, the responsibility of thinking because we look for leaders. And what we do when we look for leaders is we look for an excuse to stop thinking. 
Well, think about how easy that is. I mean, they always say about the president that becoming the president takes, what is it, every year you're the president takes two years off your life, and uh, if you're in a war, it takes four per year. I mean, and I mean, you can just see, I mean, they always have the before and after pictures, like inauguration day of President so-and-so, and then the day he got out of office, and how old they look, and you know, the difference over those four years. And I mean, I just... It's so easy for people to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to think, you know, I'm going to trust this person to do my thinking for me because people in general, they don't want that responsibility. They want to live their lives. I mean, the founding fathers didn't want the average, you know, person on the street having any responsibility. I mean, you had to have land to even vote. I mean, they didn't want the average person point. using their mental capacities to lead because they didn't think they could. And they wanted them to just be simple. Do what you want to do. And the only access the masses of any type, even restricted masses, had to political power back then was the House of Representatives. The Senate was appointed. The President was appointed by an electoral college, and that was appointed by the state legislatures. Supreme Court was appointed. Everybody was appointed. And so there were serious doubts that the Founding Fathers had about letting common people think. Well... Leadership. That's a good point. I think we should, when we end today's discussion, I think we should probably end it on the note of what does humanity really buy when they buy a leader, when they vote for a leader? Do they get anything? Is it anything other than a direction? A direction and a, a statement that they do not want to think any longer. And then when they vote somebody out, they're saying, well, this person didn't think for us well, so let us find somebody else who will think for us better. It makes you wonder about the evolution of humanity. Will we eventually evolve to the point where we lose that dependency, or that need, that seeming need to depend on someone else to do our thinking for us? Now, next Thursday, Haldeman's great book, The Forever War. So let's get a couple hundred pages into it over the next couple days. It's a really great book and it's a fast read. So Alderman's The Forever War, a couple hundred pages into it, and then we'll finish it on Tuesday, okay? And remember, you have papers to hand in this Thursday, right? Great.